the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I was reminded this week of someone quite influential in my life. Her name is Gail. She and I worked together at my first grown-up job at UAB. We would check in at points during the day. Usually, yeah, probably about now I would roll into work. I was not always prompt. She and I would visit for a little while. Inevitably, she would tell me stories of her son, Chris, who was several years younger than I am. She would get quite animated, and I can still hear her saying, have you lost your mind? In response to some of the whimsical ventures and troubles he would find himself in, she would also say that to me as a 23-year-old, as I told her of my experiences as well. Have you lost your mind? Now, Gail asked this question, which was also a declarative statement, in humor and befuddlement and in love. How do we as Christians following the risen Christ get squared up and back into the right mind when people around us say, have you lost your mind? Who calls us into that faithfulness? Who cajoles us back into living right with God? What does that even look like? When our scriptures appointed for today, we have players who are not on the same page. And I imagine that if Gail was in those spaces, she would inspire them to say to one another, have you lost your mind? In the book of Exodus, we have the Israelites trudging away from slavery in Egypt. They're going toward the promise of Yahweh, of the Lord, but they aren't there yet. Moses is faithful and pressing on prayerfully, and the people are whiny and thirsty and beyond irked, and they're not done yet. Have you lost your mind? In the gospel according to Matthew, the chief priests and the scribes are questioning with the intent to disrupt Jesus as he is teaching in the temple. Now, in this story, what has just happened the day before is the triumphal procession into Jerusalem. Hosanna in the highest. People are praising Jesus. And then he goes into the temples and turns the tables over because the money changers were taking advantage of the vulnerable people. So he comes to the temple the next day, and those scribes and those priests say, under whose authority are you doing all these things? They go back and forth a little bit, and Jesus responds ultimately saying that the calls to repentance, to change their minds, their hearts, their lives toward God, those calls for repentance are not working. Moses and the Israelites, Jesus and those chief priests, they want to say to each other, have you lost your mind? They're not on the same page. They are not 
thinking the same things or living the same ways. Isn't that the case in our own lives? That, that discord, that disconnect is often at the heart of spats in our marriages and relationships. It's at the heart of tension in our teams. And definitely when parents say either to their children's faces or behind their backs, have you lost your mind? How do we get squared up and back into the right mind? Well, we have a lovely piece of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi today. And it speaks to a time of tension and a place where the church was at an impasse. There was great financial strain on that tiny church and there was a lot of social rejection going on in the area. Paul knows of this and he writes a letter of encouragement to build up the hope of these people and to offer guidance. You know, when we get in times of stress, that's when the nattering and the splitting happens, right? Those little things that exacerbate and we end up pecking at, at each other in harmful ways. And so Paul knows this and he says, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's as if he is getting ahead of the break to say, wait, hold on to God's love first. I know this is hard. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Paul's message is not a problem-solving primer of, if you just live as Jesus lives, this wouldn't be a problem. He's not shooting on them. He's pointing to the wisdom of knowing what to do. And almost as a therapist might remind us in those moments of anxiety to reconnect with who we are before we act in destructive ways, Paul is giving us a reminder, giving the church in Philippi a reminder to breathe to get centered in one's own self and then to get centered as a community, to examine our consciences honestly and with humility, and then to look outward to the needs of others, right? Because when we're in those times of tension, we pull in, and, and Paul knows, wait, the love of Christ is facing outward. And then he says, strive for this goal, let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus. Jane Patterson was one of my seminary professors, and she was um, the professor over New Testament. 
And she writes about this passage from Philippians. She says that the Greek word that is translated as being of the same mind isn't, there's not one word in English for it. So she's offering the gist of what that, that word in Greek is meaning. She says that it's having a depth of understanding and practical wisdom to know how to act rightly, especially in confusing or complex circumstances. Those times when we might want to just shake the other person and say, have you lost your mind? We just need that wisdom to know how to act rightly. And so Paul's gift to the people of Philippi, to that church, is this. He recounts for them the Christ hymn. These ancient words explore how Jesus had an awareness of the divinity within himself and in the world around him, and yet he leaned more into service than being served. He lowered himself and obeyed to the point of death on a cross. You just heard Sherry say these words. And you heard her as she said that in response to Jesus's lowering, God lifted Jesus up and glorified him so that all may recognize Jesus as Lord and King and that we may serve at the feet of Christ. Paul is casting the reminder to look to Jesus. He names for the Philippians and for those generations that follow how to live rightly, how to live rightly in the influence of the cross upon which Jesus died. We are to be the stewards of that message. We get to adopt this certain mind, this shared ethos for caring for the legacy and ministry and resurrection hope of Jesus. As we work out our own salvation with God at work within us, we may live rightly by taking a leap as a church and a congregation grieving to build a labyrinth for all to use as a space of centering and healing in God's reconciling love. Though the cost of doing that felt so high and hard at first. Perhaps that response to the cross to live rightly is a personal or a community effort to have compassion for women struggling to re-enter life after incarceration. And so we come together and we gather feminine products and undergarments to honor the dignity of these women looking for new life, looking for hope, looking for resurrected Jesus. And as today is the first day of our stewardship campaign, we pray about how we live rightly as stewards at the feet of the cross. What is it that we need to do to tend the base of the cross? And as God calls us to share in the world, what 
shall our hands do? What financial gifts are we called to give? And how will our lives be changed by the tragedy of a man dying on the cross? And yet that cross becomes a transformed symbol, not of death, but of eternal hope and a symbol that God's love can never be extinguished. Amen.